Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. this September, the Extra Environmentalist team was fortunate enough to be part of the more than 3,000 people at the 4th International Degrowth Conference. Justin, our blog editor Louisa, and I were in Leipzig, Germany to do live streaming video coverage about ideas to enable downscaling of large industrial production and consumption in order to increase human and planetary well-being. It is only now, as our global economy continues through an economic growth crisis, that topics like degrowth can be discussed openly, drawing such a crowd at a gathering like this in Leipzig. On episode number 82 of The Extra Environmentalist and our next podcast episode, we're going to be taking you inside the current state of the degrowth movement from the 2014 International Degrowth Conference in Leipzig, Germany. And to do that, we'll be playing talks and interviews we recorded while we were there. Today, we'll start out with a talk on the way that the logic of growth colonizes our imaginations and drives our motivations with Hartmut Rosa of the University of Vienna. And Dr. Rosa is going to talk about his ideas for subverting the ways that the logic of growth plays out in our everyday lives. Then we'll be talking about where the idea of degrowth is at and some of the ways that the 2014 degrowth conference used general assemblies to develop the ideas of degrowth further with Jeff Garver, one of the lead organizers of the 2012 Montreal degrowth conference where we were recording a few years ago. This is episode number 82 of The Extra Environmentalist. I'm Justin Ritchie. And I'm Seth Moserkatz. Enjoy the show. Now we turn to the strange stuff. <laughs> yeah, I'd, uh, I'd like actually to 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 thank you to thank all of you for coming here. I really think, uh, I mean, for the to the conference in uh, in Leipzig because this is, I mean, it it shows something, right? I think it's a it's actually it's a visible sign, and it's also it's not just visible. You can also feel it that people still care about the future of the world and about the future of the so yeah i mean this is not self evident right we could on the one hand we could just give it up and think okay i mean maybe we are lost anyway or at least we don't know where we are going so i think it's not just that you do care it's also that i think coming here at least to me right what you do is is uh, giving a sign and showing and demonstrating that you still have at least some faith in the idea that we can change 
the course of the world, right? That it's not a machine running. I mean, it's not a machine that cannot be changed, right? By acting together, by coming together, by sharing and developing ideas, and by caring about the future of the planet. I think we do something in, in my new, what I try to do theoretically, I would say, Maybe what we do here is creating a sphere of resonance that does have some consequences, right? We might not yet see what the... Con yeah, okay, I know. I mean, I'm, for the longest part of my academic life, I was very skeptical too. And I thought, okay, we can talk and talk and it doesn't have any impact. But now I would actually change. Maybe it does have an impact. I just recently read, actually the other day. <laughs> I mean, yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> I read Paul Williams, he's a rock journalist, and he was describing the spirit of Woodstock, right? And I think it's, it's very interesting. It wasn't so much about argumentation. I mean, Woodstock was a musical thing, but maybe it's not an accident that music and politics in the 60s somehow came together because what they, they really thought they can feel the 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 uh, uh, the the motion they they could they could create a sphere of commonality and maybe a sphere of sound where where he said they were convinced that this had an impact on the future of the earth it wasn't just talking right just making arguments it was the idea of sharing a world and for caring about a world we share and i think something of this might come out of it uh, too but uh, i mean before we get there we have a problem <laughs> 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 and this problem, I think, was uh, uh, described very neatly uh, by Laura, too. It's like we are in a machine which is geared towards growth. It's not just economic growth, right, what we can uh, uh, read from the gross domestic products. I mean, as I think the main point, at least how, how, how I understood it from Laura, was what, that she said it's in our heads. Somehow it's in our head and our soul, this logic of growth and increase. And the, and the question we are dealing with in this session is how does it get there, right? And how could we get it out of our minds? And I think to understand how it gets there, first we need to see what it does. And I think, I mean, you would not be here if you didn't say, yes, there's a problem. We don't like this incessant need for growth and acceleration and innovation, which is totally empty, right? It, doesn't, it's, it never has an end. The logic of capitalist growth, you know that, right? It's, it's that it's never enough. No matter, actually the problem is the more we grow this year, the more we have a problem next year because we have to top it, right? And it doesn't matter how fast you are this year, next year you have to be faster. So obviously this is idiotic, right? And all of us would say, okay, we live in a perverse system. But I think on the other hand, it's really, it's really fascinating. And I don't mean this in any way offensive. But if you look at ourselves, of course it's true that we replicate, we reproduce, we have totally internalized this logic of increase and growth. I mean, we do things like coming to a conference like this by airplane, of course, for just one day. I mean, this is what all of us do. I have an, yeah, I know, we do, we do all of these things. And I have an iPhone and I know it's bad, but we all... <laughs> it's not me, it's the system, you know. <laughs> you know? But I think even if you look, if you even if you look at degrowth conferences, I find it really, I find uh, honestly, I find it fascinating, and I think we need to understand it. Uh, it 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 aspires, it 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 really aspires to grow. I mean, the, the organizers say we are more people than ever before, right? We have more panels, we we create more media attention than we ever did before, and now we even have a live stream. Uh, that, that's perfect, right? 
but there you really see uh, that's and I'm honest when I say I don't mean it offensive but you see we totally replicate this logic right we create more attention we create more people we have more papers more panels and so on and this is the only this is the way we think about ourselves and about the world right the logic of increase of acceleration of innovation and in order to understand it it's very important to see that uh, how it gets there as i said i mean one answer is to say well it's human nature right human beings always strive for increased growth innovation and i think that's just not true that because and then in the end that's the neoliberal argument they say well you are you just are that way and that's uh, maybe too bad for us but it's human nature but but then it would just be greed or so it would be a wrong attitude and we could easily change it and therefore the first step i think is very important to see it's a systemic need right it's built into the structures of society a capitalist society in in in, in particular right cannot exist without growth it's not a question of whether we want to increase we simply have to I mean, in the in the way we are organized at this moment, and this is not just true for the economy. I believe it's even true for universities and so on. When I look at what universities do, they try to prove we have more students, more third-party funding, more publications, and so on. But it's very easy to see with capitalism, right? Karl Marx, of course, would be an interesting uh, um, theoretical starting point for this. The logic of increase is built into the system. It's uh, it's money, commodity, money prime, right? Money is only set in motion in the form of capital if there is a promise for increase. And if the increase stops, you can see what happens then from Greece, for example, right? We lose jobs, companies close down, tax revenues decline, but the, but the, the expenditure of the welfare state increase because of unemployment and so on. So you get a, 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 a debt problem, and in the end you get even delegitimation of the current political system. So if we don't increase, if we don't grow, if we don't accelerate and innovate, we cannot stay as we are, but we slide back. Right, so one of my main points really is it's a systemic need for growth and if we don't satisfy it, we cannot stay who we are. So my main diagnosis would be we are not, it's not the greed, the, the, the need for increase which is driving us in the first place, but it's the fear of losing ground, of, of not being able to sustain the status quo. So that would be the, 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 first, the first argument, right? And that means, if that's true, I think it's very important conceptually I would say for all of us, a degrowth society, which we are aspiring to, that's why we call it post-growth in Jena actually, is not one that necessarily shrinks or that will never innovate or grow or accelerate. Well, because sometimes it's, it's, if, you, if, you are, if you're short on bread, it would be a good idea to grow in, in, in the bread production, right? Or it's also good to innovate something against Ebola or, or, Ebola or, or cancer or other diseases. But we should overcome, what we are looking for is a system that does not necessarily need to grow, to increase, to speed up, to innovate in order to keep the status quo. But this is important because our degrowth community right, is always in danger that people say, but look at people in Africa, they are starving from hunger, so don't, we want, don't you want growth there? So that's not a problem for a post-growth society, quite to the contrary. right? You can really show how through the current system, systematic scarcity is produced in Africa and elsewhere. right? Of course we want growth and innovation, but, not, uh, but we want to overcome a system that needs to grow, innovate, accelerate in a blind way. Now, the, inter the interesting question is how, how is this system sustained through the subjects? And now I want to move in three steps. I have uh, 12 minutes for this also. Uh, the, first is, uh, the, the first argument is uh, it's coercion, right? To a large extent we feel that we need to 
satisfy the logic of growth. As I said, I think we are driven by fear much more than by anxiety. But then the second step, which I find at current more interesting, is that I think we also want, because, because of a certain conception of the good life, this, it might be totally unnoticed by you or not conscious, but I think we are all driven by a logic of increase of a certain kind, and I want to explore this, and then I want to say how we can get out of it. Okay, first point, how does it get into our minds? And my first argument is by coercion, and that's very, very close to what Laura said, right? I think somehow we are always, what I say, subjects of guilt. It's close to what you said already. We feel guilty if we don't improve in a certain sense, right? And I would actually claim that's true for all of you. If maybe tomorrow night you sit at home, you feel guilty, I claim, right? If you sit beside the fireplace or wherever you want to sit. I mean, why do you feel guilty? Benjamin Franklin would say, yeah, because you should remember that time is money. Probably you say, well, no, that's not my problem, right? I don't want permanently an increasing... Uh, 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 amount of money, but uh, I, I would add with uh, with uh, to Benjamin Franklin. Yeah, but the problem is that in the neoliberal age, you also remember that time is social relations, for example, social capital, right? And then you think, oh, it's true. There's this email by that friend, or maybe by the degrowth conference organizers. I should answer that, and I always wanted to call up this friend or this. Uh, person I know or so on. Oh, you remember, oh yeah, that's true, my neighbors, they are new and uh, maybe I should talk to them or so, right? So you remember that your time uh, it, it could be used for increasing social capital, you can say in, in a bad way, but actually, but, but so you probably don't think about it in capital ways because you're not capitalist, but of course, <laughs> But of course you know it's important to know people, to care for people, to have friends and so on, and so you try to increase your relationships. Maybe you say, no, I'm, I'm not concerned about money, I'm not concerned about social relationship, that's fine. Okay, so then you sit beside the fireplace. And then, <laughs> and then you remember, oh, maybe actually I should pick up with the news, right? I don't know what's going on in the world. I've lost track of the Ukraine, of Syria, of many other things. So you start reading through the news or you start reading Shakespeare because you've never done it. <laughs> or you say, oh, Yesterday he talked about Woodstock. I have this Woodstock movie. Maybe I should see that, right? So actually you remember that, that time is cultural capital, is knowledge, is increasing your stock of knowledge, of, of, of capabilities and so on. But maybe you say, no, sorry, I don't care for money, I don't care for education, I don't care for friends. Okay, good for you. <laughs> then maybe <laughs> you sit beside the fireplace and remember, Actually, I could do something for my body, right? Go a little. <laughs> okay, I see. <laughs> well, that's the neoliberal governmentality, right? You, you never went for jogging, and you know that movement, physical exercise is good for you. Okay, so you do something for this. Maybe you even don't care for physical exercise and for how you look. But then you remember that for the good life, it's very important to relax, to meditate. <laughs> So whatever you do, I mean, this is what I say, it, it, it creates subjects of guilt. It's very, very hard to get out of this, of this uh, inner urge, right? And, and, and you can also go uh, argue, argue this point through to-do lists. At the end of the day, you've never finished the to-do list. But now, okay, so I think you got that point, right? So, <laughs> next point. But I think this is not enough to explain why we cannot get out of this machine of increase, of innovation, of acceleration. 
because no system can survive in the long run, and capitalism, for example, survives for more than 200 years now. And no system, I believe, could survive in the long run if it did not have some uh, promise, right? some attractivity. And I really think it's true if we look at ourselves. It's not just that we feel we have to. We also want to. Now, the interesting question is, what do we want to? And I think that really this is very deeply ingrained culturally, even on the, in the liberal ways of thinking, it comes through our conception of autonomy also, right? Uh, that a good life is one that increases our reach over the world, our hold on the world, right? I really believe that you think, when you think of your decisions, I will come to the examples in the end. I want to first make the argument. So, so the argument is, no, no, I go through the examples straight away. <laughs> Otherwise, Stefan Lesnick will stop me, right? So, so why is money attractive? But I'm not sure how attractive it is to you, but I think I found out that for many people who say, I don't care about money at all, it's very interesting, right? When it really comes to money, they all of a sudden care a lot about it. But no matter, why is it not for you, but for other people, money attractive? <laughs> so, and I think, it's obvious why it is attractive, right? Be because when you have a lot of money, right, you can do many things. You bring the world within your reach. If you're really rich, you can afford to fly to Tokyo or San Francisco or Los Angeles or Melbourne tomorrow if you want to. So having a lot of money brings the world within your reach. You can also buy a spectacularly good telescope or you can buy, a, a, I don't know what, musical instruments and other things or maybe even a ship. Right? You, you can do things. You bring the world within your reach. You, 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 you increase your scope and your hold over the world. So maybe you say, well, but still money is not attractive for me. No, no, it, it, I, can, I can now go through the same spheres as before with the guilt side, right? Now we don't look at guilt, we look at attractivity, right? So why is knowledge interesting for you? Education. Well, you say, I want to learn English or some other language because it opens up a whole new world of knowledge, of literature, of music, of people you can connect to, right? So you want to learn languages, you want to explore new forms of knowledge because it opens up parts of the world. It brings them within your reach. If you can, if you know English, you can read Shakespeare in the original and so on, right? If, if, if a kid wants to be a gardener or a mechanic or a baker, what do you tell him or her? If it's your son or daughter, you tell her, oh, still get the high school diploma, the Abitur, right? Why? Oh, because it opens up a whole world of options for you, right? You never know what you want to do in the future, so it's a stock which enables you to do more things. And, and then there's something which probably is true to you too. Why do people all over the world want to live in cities rather than in the countryside, right? Why? I think for most people it's true uh, who are here. Uh, it's, it's true too. Why is Leipzig more interesting than Jena, for example, right? <laughs> or than the Black Forest? Well, people, <laughs> people move there <laughs> because it opens up, it gives you possibilities. People in Berlin notoriously say they are so proud of the three opera houses. They can go there whenever they want to. They don't, they don't go there. <laughs> but, but, but they have the options, right? It increases the range of options. And, and why is a smartphone attractive? I mean, I know so many people who said, I will never get it. And then they... Well, maybe they resisted for two or three years. I even know some who gave it up for a year or so, and then they have it again. And wh why is it interesting? Why is it attractive? You can say, I, I don't have it because it's attractive, but then I don't believe you, right? It somehow is attractive. It, it, it's, of course, it's attractive because it brings the world into your pocket, right? Now, I really have the world in my pocket, the knowledge of the world, the literature of the world, the music of the world, the news of the world, and I have all the contacts in my pocket. So I think it's really true. We follow this logic. 
increasing our range of options, but that's how I described it for many years. Now I would say it's not just the range of options, it's really bringing the world within our reach. That's our conception of the good life, making world available, right? I I moving forward towards new horizons. And maybe th this is not just bad, right? But uh, in a sense, I would say it is bad. I mean, because it's driving the logic of growth, acceleration, innovation. Now, how do we get it out of our minds? I mean, that's quite difficult, right? If it's true that we follow this logic. And I think if we rethink, we, we start changing the world, if we rethink what really, what are the important points in your life, right? What are the important moments if in your life? What are the, maybe the secret yearnings which you do not satisfy? I think people wouldn't come to degrowth conferences if this was the perfect way to, to lead our lives, right? So what's the problem with it? The problem I try to describe with the term of alienation, right? The problem is that you might get the whole world into your reach because you have money and smartphones and, and other things, but you, you're in danger. That's what people feel. They can actually feel it. The danger is that it doesn't speak to us anymore, right? It doesn't move us anymore. It becomes a dead and silent world which we command, right? But it doesn't touch us. I think there are so many instances where you can see all the protest forms against this logic of increase. They're almost, almost always inspired by what I call the idea of resonance, but I would rather say the, re the yearning for resonance. You want to be connected. To, you want to actually, uh, our relationship to the world is of a different kind. The good life the change, the, the, the capitalist way of life, the neoliberal way of life, and the good life, I think the difference is in the way of relating to people, to things, to art, to nature maybe, right? So what, what do we aspire to? And I think, uh, when you think, if I asked you what was the really important uh, moment in your life, in, in your last year maybe, right? I think almost all of you would come up with a story which ends with, and that really touched me. That really moved me, right? That had an, it's because it left something like an, a, a lasting impression on us. And, and this impression, it's not about a state of mind. Resonance is not a state of mind or emotion. Resonance is a form of relating. And, and you can see this, for example, in the ecological. A lot of people who are here are, uh, are uh, inspired by the ecology, by, by ecological concerns. Why, what is that about? Right? I think it's not about resources. I think the ecological movement is not successful as long as it thinks it's about preserving resources. Because that's exactly in the logic of increasing our, our reach over the world. Right? We need resources to sustain our form of life. But what people is really are driven by when they are ecologically concerned is the idea that, uh, that nature is a sphere which actually has something to tell us. Right? People go to the forests, they move to the mountains or to the oceans. Because there they feel connected. You can actually, the phenomenology is quite good in describing what happens to us. If you stand at the ocean, at the sea, you, you change even in, in the way you stand there. Your physical, uh, your habitus changes. You open up, you feel connected to the waves as they roll in, or to the forest, or to the mountains. And that's why we care about ice bears and other animals, right? Not because they are resources we, because, which we might need, but it's something we can connect to. 
I can go through uh, all the spheres now in art, for example, right? Why do you, why do you care for music if you care for it? And I think you do, right? Most do. Or for other forms of art, why do people go to museums? It's not about bringing the world in reach in the first place, but people want to be moved, touched. I can make all these arguments. Even in the cinema, right? You like to cry there. You get, you get out of the cinema and, said, and say it was such a great movie. I, I cried so much, right? So how can it be great if you cry? So there you see it's not about a state of emotions. It's about a state of relating. You relate to a story. Narrations are those things which create resonance in you. You hear a story, you see a story, you feel it, and it touches you and it resonates with you. And I think that's the problem with, uh, that's actually the problem with uh, democracy too, right? In, in, in democracy, uh, people aspire for resonance, creating a sphere of resonance. I just read the other day Nancy Love's book, Musical Democracy. I like it very much. The, her idea is that the problem with current democracy, why so many people are fed up with it, right? Because in th this works much more in German than in any other language. Uh, uh, th the idea is democracy is about making your voice heard. Right? Making a voice heard is already a resonance thing, right? And it's, of course, in acting together, in creating a sphere of acting together, creating a sphere of resonance. But the representative form of democracy we have right now is about die Stimme abgeben, right? <laughs> Sie geben die Stimme ab, right? You, you, you vote and then there's an aggregation of interests and preferences and negotiations and so on. This is nothing to do, this is a betrayal of the resonance quality of acting together, of appropriating the world, of getting the world speak to you, right? And I, I think in Gezi Park and in Tahir Square and in Tiananmen Square and in Maidan and in many other places, in Stuttgart and in many other cases, people wanted, they really shouted at the public world and at politicians, right, in an attempt to recreate forms of political resonance. So I think what we should do, starting today in Leipzig, is creating public spheres of resonance. Thanks a lot. The growth machine is very much like a bicycle that needs moving on or it would fall down. How actually, when we think about growth, this is a quite crazy bicycle. It does not only move on, but it keeps accelerating in order not to fall down. Under these conditions, slowing down or stopping leads to a disaster. The economy is pitted against the environment again and again. We need another bicycle or another way to move on. Growth has turned from a means for securing well-being into a goal of its we own. We have to keep creating new artificial needs, creation of private debt to cover new needs and create even more new needs. And so it's hardly surprising if we combine these basic logics and realities that we can understand why we've got carbon dioxide emissions increasing massively depending on how fast you're putting stuff through your system, which is called growth, GDP. It is the most inefficient model you could think of. The affluent society, not the affluent society. A growth-based society, which is no longer growing, is doomed to collapse. If we want to meet the 2 degree climate protection target, we know that there is a kind of limit for the global budget of CO2 emissions. For those of us in the global north, what we need to be doing in the next decade is lowering our emissions by between 8 and 10% a year. 
if we want to have a 50-50 chance of keeping global temperatures below two degrees warming, um, which is already a dangerous target. Um, if we are going to do that, it is not compatible with economic growth. We have to distribute this global budget. It's time to start working and changing that damn bicycle. Anybody claiming there is such a thing as, that, as green growth, that decoupling is possible, has not looked hard at these numbers. The promise is over. We need an entirely new economic model, a new way of sharing the planet, telling us that we need to evolve. The challenge now is how to build a just, solidary and democratic society that is no longer dependent on economic growth. So what we have is the grassroots stepping in. We have to have our resistance and our alternatives um, woven together. Thinks of all the initiatives related to the transition towns, social cooperatives, community-supported agriculture and the like. Sharing. Durable goods. Anti-pipeline activism. Open source ecology. Direct democracy. Direct action. Creating communities, not collections of millions of individuals. Even living without a car. While degrowth in a literal sense, which comes from ecological economics, means the material reduction of the overall scale of the economy, the colored and heterogeneous group gathering under the idea of degrowth, also here in Leipzig, intended in a wider way. Ecology, democracy, ecological economics, critique to development. Do it yourself, cultures. Peasants' movements all over the world. The grassroots saying no, leave it in the ground. But also feminists reclaiming the core role of care against the capitalistic logic. Each of us normally comes from one or two different perspectives, and we met in degrowth. The growth challenge is the hegemony of growth. So this is the influence from anthropology, for instance, the idea of the decolonization of the imaginary, and calls for a democratically-led redistributive downscaling of production and consumption in industrialized countries as a means, because the growth is not the final end, it's just a means to achieve environmental sustainability, social justice, and well-being. Creating or recreating norms of behavior about care, sympathy, respect for others, the human and non-human, <coughs> We need a comprehensive uh, uh, definition, but it is not yet there. So you are welcome to work on it too. The local economy, which is completely based on uncommercialized forms of creating value. The solidary peer-to-peer -peer or caring economies. Changing transportation systems, changing the food production system, changing what is produced for whom and how. And let's deconstruct the modern corporation. Confronting the carbon criminals. I think we need also to relax, have some free time and laser. And we need to also the pants. And the pants means just to waste ourselves without particular purpose. We need to do that from time to time, collectively, and I think the party today is a good opportunity. Degrowth as a project for societal transformation has the power of becoming a concrete utopia. So that's the task ahead.
think this conference was perfect. The only criticism I have to make is that it was too perfect. And I think, I, I think in the growth and in the growth conferences, we need a little bit of inefficiency. This was, this was too good. And you were just hearing clips from our videos at the 2014 Degrowth Conference edited together by Sam Bliss for Grist at grist.org. We'll put a link to the article that Sam wrote in recapping the conference in our show notes, which includes an edited video that Sam put together from all of our video clips and clips from other video teams at the conference. And next on Extra Environmentalist number 82, we're talking about the ideas of degrowth with Jeff Garver of McGill University. I'm just now the project coordinator of a new partnership called Economics for the Anthropocene, something that your audience should uh, really be interested in. That's uh, very much linked to the, the degrowth idea and movement, so uh, I'm here kind of on behalf of them, but also we now have a growing set of organizers of these conferences and we had a meeting to talk about uh, where we go next. When you're, the, when you're an organizer, you just don't get to sit back and relax, you know, look through the, the program and, and engage. You might engage in a much different way. But, you know, that said, I think this was really, really well done. This was a really well done conference. I was on the committee that, that helped make the choice to review the proposals uh, for conferences, and this one really stood out even at that point. You know, Leipzig is an interesting city, changing in terms of, I think, its industrial makeup. At, at one point, I think it was described as a degrowing city. I don't know if that's uh, the case, but a former East German city. Um, so the setting uh, was in Leipzig and also in Germany, I think, was really interesting. You know, German engineering. <laughs> Very detail-oriented, and you could tell through every part of the event as it was happening. You know, I, I, there was a comment in the last session, which I, I, I thought was interesting. I, Yorgos Kallis, who's with Research and Degrowth, and you know, he's really one of the, one of the really great thinkers on, on the degrowth idea. Uh, he said it was too perfect. And you know, in another session, he also said, we don't really know what degrowth is. It's an evolving idea, and it's not out there in a, in a big way so that we can observe it. So we're kind of uh, studying it in the, in the abstract. But there were things in many sessions that I saw, things like, you know, cherish our mistakes and, and, and let them happen. And when you're an organizer, you don't really want that to happen. But uh, <laughs> I thought that was an interesting idea. Was it, was it too perfect? I, I think you go with, you know, it was the, quote, perfect conference, and, and that means that was really, really good. But I, I think if you think deeply about the degrowth idea, it's an interesting concept. We want things to be a little messy. Um, so one thing that I noticed here, as compared to some past events, was there were, were a lot of people here. And there were a lot of young people here as well. And that might be because we're at a university campus or, you know, it's a young city. But there was a lot of people here. There was over 3,000 people here, which is a vast difference. And they joked about it a lot. They said it was growing when we were doing a degrowth conference which is kind of interesting, right? But my question is, what, what, do you say, what, is it, what do you think this says about the movement, that there's this many people who find it that compelling to come out to this conference and, and hear about these ideas? And I'll also add that a lot of the audience here seem to be under 35, which is not my experience in organizing events around these issues in, in say, Vancouver, Canada, where it seems like we have a really hard time engaging youth on these issues. 
Well, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's because the movement's growing or I, some of the people I spoke to seem to think it had to do with the fact that, it, that it's in Germany. There's something about the, the culture and, and, and the awareness here. But yeah, it, it's absolutely terrific to see that number of people and especially young people. You know, one thing I wonder about, and I, I, I don't have a strong sense of it, we'll have to see how, you know, as results of this conference get pulled together. You know, they have this group assembly process and I like the way they did that. That was something that I, I, I think if I were going to do another conference, I think I'd pay a little more attention to than we did in Montreal. Uh, that's an ongoing process. There's a process for follow-up and, and continuing to take input and, and, and pulling out together some of Could the ideas. Could you go into a little bit more detail about that group assembly process? What, would that, what was that like for you? What was, that, what was the process like? You were actually in those sessions, and because Seth and I were doing video, we didn't get to observe any of that. So uh, the more detail you can describe on yeah. how that worked, the better. So I, 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 now my understanding that this doing something along these lines is really a core idea since the first meeting was held in Paris. So I think it, it especially got established in Barcelona. So I don't know if they called it a group assembly process, but a process like this where they had a number of topics. So uh, the one that I participated in was resources and extraction. But there are things like in income, uh, social security, the role of money, you know, child care education. In, in Barcelona, they came out with something called the Barcelona bullet points. Now, Montreal, we distributed those beforehand, and, and the message we sent to people is, this is the starting point. These are a set of ideas that we want to critique and, and move forward in some way. So this, the group assembly process has been uh, an idea in all of, all of the conferences, and it's really consistent with the idea of, of degrowth as an idea being evolutionary and sort of emerging through the, through this process. So what's challenging is is you have these small groups of 20 to 25 people and you had to register before. But you're, you know, that's necessarily uh, an, you know somewhat arbitrary self-selected cross-section of, of people even within uh, degrowth. So for that process to work well, people really have to do some homework. If if the idea is to grow a set of ideas that are supposed to evolve, you really need to do some work to, f to find out what those ideas are. And I wasn't sure that that had been done. So like bringing everyone up to speed, let's say if you were in a group on local currencies or something, bringing everyone up to speed so that you can have a discussion that moves things forward rather than bringing the whole group onto the same page, that would eat up a lot of time, right? That's what you're talking about? Yeah. So what the way they did it here is they had, what they, they had I think each session had what they called a stirring paper. So that's helpful, but even there, the person doing the stirring paper then I think really has the obligation to draw from what's already been done on that topic. And and when you have this many people at a conference, it's very hard to pull things together. And also, uh, perhaps as nebulous as a concept as degrowth is, and a lot of the discussion revolves around the vocabulary and saying what is degrowth. And I have these Barcelona bullet points here, and I just wanted to go through some of those because I think it really is a good statement of answering what degrowth actually means. And so it says things like the long-term vision is one that fits within ecological limits and recognizes the diversity of human capabilities to realize various potentials, escape from the homo economicus mental box, identifying fundamental human needs, uh, increasing the visibility of positive examples, and they go through on all these points of democracy, education, uh, property rights, etc., and imagine how those would be restructured in a degrowth society. So is the intention really to use those group assembly processes and to come up with something that is similar to those bullet points of defining those aspects of a degrowth society? The, the idea is for them to build off of what was done in previous conferences. And, you know, they had pretty good statements on extraction. So I guess another question is, well, how, how, far, how far can we go? We talked a little about 
this when I met with this other group of people who've organized these conferences and trying to think through some ideas uh, for the next one. This summer I was hooked up with people uh, with the Institute on New Economic Thinking, INET, and they have a program called the Young Scholars Initiative, and I, they have a really interesting process for when they do conferences. They, they explicitly focus on follow-up. So though the, the conference is really a, a convening uh, on a topic and an icebreaker kind of thing to get people to, to, to know each other, but the focus is on setting up a follow-up process where they hook up by, I think they use GoToMeeting, one of these you know, fairly simple platforms, which are really just to allow them to have discussions, and then they move forward a plan for producing some kind of you know, a concrete outcome, a, a journal article, a set of essays, a book, whatever. You know, they discuss what they want to do. But it, it, it allows people to season their thinking rather than doing it in a very focused three-day period and probably get a you know a richer more thoughtful result and I, I I think that's something that might work well with this group assembly process in, in, in other years so we did we worked on you worked on these these group convenings uh, committees to try to work that com that definition of degrowth into a little bit more of a, uh, a picture that's clear for people to understand we, do you think we've moved that, that picture forward? Do you think that degrowth is now becoming clear? Do people are understanding what it means to degrow? Is that, is that picture becoming something that is more coherent? I, mean, I think it, there are some points that, that are emerging as central. I don't know when they emerge that way. So one, one thing about this group assembly process that I think does help reinforce the, the degrowth idea is that it's, it's done in a way that is meant to be consistent with, you know, with transparency, and democratic process and, and uh, you know, direct participation of people. So even the process itself is consistent with an idea of degrowth. Degrowth resonates with, and it has from the beginning, and I think it just gets, is getting more and more reinforced with some ideas that have existed in, in uh, you know, the, the whole that set of ideas that Ivan Illich developed, the tools for conviviality. So conviviality is a word that is repeated more and more and is getting, I think, embedded as a core concept. When Vivir, right, there yeah, was the good a, life. People have talked about the good life a lot, just saying, what do we need for the good life? What does the good life even mean? I feel like that's very, very tied up with degrowth. And having that happiness or the content, contentedness or whatever that is, that good life implies, is very much attached to that definition. There were some very interesting sessions on that. They raised challenging questions, you know, so that Part of the idea of Buen Vivir or, or, or the good life is an idea of, of emancipation or liberation from, uh, from forms of you know, economic systems that are coercive or, or, or have systems of domination where you know, you, you're working for somebody to make somebody else rich and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, but the idea of freedom is, is interesting there because you're not free to do things that are harmful, overly harmful to the ecological system in which you're, you live, you kind of have to be uh, nice. You, you know, there's an overlay of, of ethical action. And, and exactly what that means, I think, you know, you said that, that's quite a, a discussion. But I agree, understanding that and developing that idea more is, is, is happening at the same time and it's consistent with, with degrowth. You know, what we really need, I'll go back to what Yorgos Kali said about, you know, there's nothing out there called degrowth that we're observing. It's in many ways an idea. There's a big challenge to try and find the the, the concrete examples that live, as some people call them, the nowtopias, the, the, the places where, uh, where some 
big ideas and degrowth are seem to be working out over time. Uh, some of the um, people point to the um, the cooperatives in, in Catalonia, the, that movement, and, and there, there's many others. But uh, yeah, Buen Vivir is, is, is a central idea. Simplicity or voluntary simplicity. The idea of, I think, being intentional about about degrowing. The, the idea of intention is is really central. And one thing that I think that is really that you can't get away from right now in our society is the fact that growth is so much attached to what it means to be productive, what it means to be happy in our society. They're a normal part of being part of the Western society, a normal part of being part of uh, this fast-paced life that we're so much embedded in. Moving away from that idea, moving away from that kind of fast-paced, always on, always thinking about the next way to make yourself more productive, lifestyle is something that people are going to have a hard time getting out of and finding their way away from that is something that I think these conferences really prime people for they let people know that there's another way to act and to believe and I think that's one of the, the reasons that people come to these conferences to, is to have that perspective given to them or, or examples of that scene well, and, and I just wanted to add on that point, I think one of the interesting things in addition to the group assembly process in living that spirit has been how the meals have been organized and prepared collectively, largely, I think, by volunteers, if not entirely by volunteers, where they've just made requests at many of the conference sessions to say, we need help, go and volunteer your time. And it works out, and it's unbelievably uh, uh, well. Uh, it's worked out unbelievably well, because if I were to imagine how that could happen there's just so many things that could go wrong but there was food and it was prepared and it was actually really good and it was very affordable and so uh there were these massive lines but they just moved through extremely fast fastest queue i've ever sat through like the longest queue and then the fastest it's ever gone it's so fast it's incredible i agree that worked really well in montreal you know we did a communal meal and um we did we did that one time but we also relied on volunteer tourism and it's key to these things and people yeah it reflects the commitment people have to the to the core ideas they did a lot of that here it, it was really nice to see I, I wanted to respond a little to what Seth was saying on this on the challenge of moving away from growth I think one thing I've noticed at this conference and in other degrowth settings is it really is hard and and everybody here I think has some tendency to look to uh, solutions to problems that are related to growth that are still embedded in, in, in the growth system. And I, you know, it, it takes some discipline. We have to catch ourselves and each other. I mean, in a nice way, we have to say, well, doesn't that seem like something that it, it, at best has to be transitional as we move to something different? We're, we're part of living systems and, and, and human con systems of human constructs. So uh, like law or, or economics, those are human uh, uh, contracts to try to explain how we interact with each other. Um, and, and with the world, and they take they take time to change. And our starting point to move from degrowth is is very much, uh, you know, submerged in in a growth insistent uh, system and and complex of systems. So that path dependency, those, you know, the institutions that we've set up, uh, the even our physical infrastructure, our roads, our transportation systems, they're all they're all part of that. So we have to move out of that from within it, and. You know, even some of the some of the great thinkers within degrowth have you know they talk about uh, uh, Pigovian taxes, which you know taxes that you put on 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 goods, say to ex internalize external environmental or, or, or other costs. 
Well, when you do that, you do something that's, that goes against what I understand to be a core idea that degrowth typically rejects, which is monetization uh, of nature or, or you know, give, putting a monetary value as, as, as opposed to doing other types of valuation that, in order to make, to make decisions. So it's, it's really hard. My answer there is that we, really, we have to be explicit that, you know, yes, maybe Pigovian taxes, yes, we acknowledge that that is, has its roots in the growth assistance system, and therefore it must be transitional. So if we're going to rely on them, we also need to look down that path and see a way out of using them through something, some idea that may still need to emerge. Those are some of the tricky challenges, I think, of, of, of T-Growth. And we were actually filming at a panel about financialization of nature, and it was one of the more interesting panels we filmed because there was one person on the panel speaking for ecosystem services and valuation, and then two people speaking against it, and it provided some really interesting contrast. But anyways, getting back to the context of degrowth, I think um, in defining the vocabulary and defining the idea, do you feel that uh, degrowth is moving out of the academic and activist realm and becoming something more that regular people could connect with in any way? Like if someone had come to this conference and was not familiar with the ideas of degrowth and maybe was even a little bit like, hey, economic growth is really good, we need more of that. How do you think they would potentially perceive these conversations? Uh, how, how do you think it's persuading people as a, as a concept? I always test that out with my own, you know, say with my own family, how much inroad could I have with my own family? And it's, it's really hard. I mean, those are, I don't want to get too personal here, but I have, you know, some members of my family, you know, they've, they've, they've built their lives on, you know, at a, just a, a bedrock, non-doubting acceptance of, of the growth insistent System. This is a theme we come back to a lot on our show where we talk about that and the dialogue we have with people in our lives. I, I find issues. that, you know, obviously I find that a little, a, a little distressing. I grew up with these people and I, and, and, uh, and I love them, you know, but I, I don't know that I can convince them on some of these ideas. You know, in other parts of my life, I see, I see big opportunities. So I, I, grew up, I grew up Quaker. There's a core idea in Quakerism. The, the guy who started Quakerism, George Fox, wrote in journal entry, which basically, I'll paraphrase here, is, you know, be an example, uh, live uh, your life according to the truth as you understand it. Now, that could be, for some Quakers, that's a very Christian idea. For me, it's, it, it's a lot has to do with my understanding of how the world works. Of, you know, it's a scientific-based truth. Um, and, you know, live consistent with those truths and then you will walk cheerfully over the world, answering to that of God in every person. And again, the idea of God there can mean, basically means you will bring out that idea of truth in others. They will respond to it, and you will respond to, back to them. And that can then um, you know, grow the idea. Because what, and, and the key, I, key part of that, where you, you know, if you want to have a leap of faith here, is that you, by living according to your convictions, and be willing to have them continually evolve, which is also an idea in Quakerism, then you will walk cheerfully, then you will feel joy, then you will have, you know, experience satisfaction in your life. And you have to live that experience, and, and I'm fortunate that in some areas I have. You know, I've, 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 I've shed some of the moral dissonance I have about ways I, I behaved that I that I wasn't right with myself about. And, you know, you, you, you reach levels of serenity. And I, I think 
if part of the truth you understand is that we are not living within Earth's means, we have areas of social injustice that we contribute to in the way we consume and stuff, and you start acting to address that, you get the deepest and best kind of life satisfaction um, that, that I think humans can hope, hope to have. And that, I think, is, you know, so that's a community of people who I think have a strong, strong uh, moral and religious or whatever it is base to accept the ideas of, of, of growth. Um, but there aren't that many Quakers either. No, I think that's an interesting point. And one thing you bring up when you're speaking is the fact that people are continually changing their mind to be happy or shedding old ideas to, to find new ideas. And that, for a lot of people, is very, very difficult. Getting rid of old belief systems, putting those aside, things that you've grown up with, things that your parents have taught you for your whole life is something that's very, very hard for people to wrap their brains around. And they'll cling desperately to those old belief systems and those old hopes and dreams with just like with the tendril of a hope, even if it might be there, even as the world changes around them, even as their old ideologies are crashing around. And this is something that humans have a really difficult time doing is evolving their belief systems. And the people here at this conference are definitely trying to do that. It's trying to affect a belief system change. This is a really difficult thing. And bringing those ideas out to other people, presenting them in ways that other people can understand and really appreciate doesn't really work in a lot of ways because they, don't, they hold on to those other belief systems so tightly. Where do you see these ideas emerging in the political, in the political sphere, in the public sphere? Can, could you ever see a, pol a political candidate coming out and saying, I want less growth, I want less work, I want to run electricity 23 hours a day instead of 24 hours a day? Could you ever see something like that emerging in our world Maybe in the next ten years or five years, or yeah. Well, I certainly can. I, I certainly think it can happen in Europe. This is also a discussion among the degrowth, the research and degrowth people, the organizers of you know the team of organizers is um, that they, they they have in these conferences connected with some 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 political people in parties that are that that have some representation. So um, I think it could it could it could uh, start here. You know, where I live in, in, in Montreal, in Quebec, uh, a few years ago, I, I really, I, I lost track of this. I want to find it again. But there were two people, I think they were associated with Quebec Solidaire. I better not uh, be wrong about that. So let me just be clear. I'm, I'm not certain that that was a group. But it was a political uh, organization, I believe, at the Quebec provincial level that essentially, you know, adopted a degrowth stance. And uh, they now have three members of the of the Quebec um, Assembly uh, I think 10 years ago they had none and, and you know, that's uh, that kind of growth I like to see um, you know, so there there are there are some uh, there is some potential that the problem is can a party that has a realistic chance um, of getting uh, elected of holding power um, not just getting elected but but, but holding power I you know I that's 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 obviously further further down the line. This is an arena in which you can get excited about the ideas. You can you can you know the 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 power of them can become more and more apparent and more and more cohesive. Uh, but the you know being hopeful and optimistic, you know I I sort of uh, I have a constant war with myself about that. I try to stay I try to stay hopeful and optimistic. Yeah, but we heard in the, in the in the closing session. Do we need to sort of act on the basis of the chance of success, or do we act based on 
the truth as we understand it. Basing, you know, once you once you understand some of the issues that are at the heart of degrowth, you know, I, I believe it's important to constantly question and critique your set of beliefs. But you know, if 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 you keep coming back to the same place, you can't undo that. <laughs> you can't you, you you can't ignore it. I'm going to continue voting for the people if I can find them that that uh, will go this way, and and, and hope that. Uh, the idea grows. Yeah, and so the <laughs> the concept of degrowth is very much one that evolved from an understanding that there are limits to growth from a natural science basis and analysis of uh, oil and, and climate change and, and all of these issues. And so it was interesting to see here at this conference where the focus was very much on more of the political science and political ecology. Uh, there were scientific and economic sessions that were happening, but Seth and I weren't in those so much just because of where we were filming. Uh, as far as the content goes at this conference, do you think that we're very much past the point where we need to have someone, you know, giving a keynote on the current updates on peak oil, or uh, and just focusing on, you know, ideas and concepts for work sharing, or how the crisis is affecting, you know, Southern Europe and things, or where where does that kind of balance play into the concept of degrowth? I, th I think what, there you have to have place for that more scientific part of it, if that's the right. Uh, the right word. I mean, we have to we have to understand those limits better. We have to, you know, a lot a lot of you. I know I work with the planetary boundaries um, idea, and you know, a lot of those limits when they were proposed in 2009 by this paper from the Stockholm Resilience Center, mostly the, many of the authors, the lead author, Rockstrom was from there. Is you know, they were our best guesses at the time. But you know, for for every one of them, the maybe the clearest one was you know, were ones like uh, depletion of stratospheric ozone. Uh, and climate change, but some of the other ones like biodiversity loss or overloading of ecosystems with nitrogen or phosphorus. Saying there's a global limit and when they, when they really start is, is more regional, local problems with a lot of diversity and how they play out in different parts of the world. That's, that's, a, that's a tougher case to make, but those are huge changes, human-driven changes that we have to, uh, that, that we have to track and that, you know, I think very likely have, you know, some, some kind of limits. Um, yeah, so I, I do think it's important. Um, I just uh, just a little, I, you know, this idea of limits, I think, is something that's very interesting. Degrowth, is, as, as we know, it's come out many times here in a previous conference. It's, it's a so-called missile world it's a word. It's a, it's a jolt word um, to, to, to try to wake people up. But it, it, it uses the vocabulary of, of a growth-insistent economy. The, the word grow and degrow is growth of the economy and the material and throughput in the, in the economy and that's what degrowth wants to see degrow. But of course, degrowth also wants to see other things grow. Solidarity, compassion, simple living, and so on. And I was reminded in a discussion about this this week, we want to, we want to put things in positive terms. So in discussing about what should be limited, you know, I, was, I recall an, an essay I read by Wendell Berry in Harper's Magazine a few years ago called Faustian Economics. And he, he made the point that, that things like um, a painting or a piece of music, or a play, they all have limits. You know, a painting has a border. Play or a piece of music has a beginning and an end. But those limits open up infinite possibilities in how you see or hear them or interpret them or take them, you know, incorporate them into your heart and soul. I think that's a really nice, positive idea that can somehow be incorporated into, into degrowth when we talk about what needs to grow, what doesn't need to grow, and what limits are involved in that. 
And, and so in kind of wrapping up and closing out for our conversation here, I was wondering uh, if you wanted to talk a little bit about your work and also the ideas of uh, degrowth moving forward and, you know, any anything else that you wanted to mention that stood out from sessions you were in. Yeah, thanks, Justin. I, I will then just re reiterate this new program economics uh, for the Anthropocene. This is focusing on Ph.D. students. We have a $2.5 million six-year grant from the Canadian government under their Social Sciences and Humanity, Humanities Research Council. You know, we're excited about trying to do some, some really good new things that I think resonate very, very strongly with degrowth. So part of this is uh, there's a core curriculum uh, that, that's really grounded in the central ideas of ecological economics, which is unfortunately called ecological economics because it's it's truly a transdiscipline. So the kind of students it's we not wanna, just economics. No, no, yeah. and and Far you know, so you know, we somebody who would be a great candidate for this would be someone who really understands systems theory, for example, or complex adaptive systems, and or law. You know, I, I'm I'm from a law uh, law background, and we want to explicitly extend the the, the what's sometimes called the pre-analytical vision of ecological economics. Basically, that economics and other human constructs like law, governance, and so on are embedded in an ecological setting that has to be accounted for. And that our current system, especially the economic system and a growth consistent uh, economy, simply doesn't uh, account for. So uh, that, um, I think, is a, a great opportunity for students who might want to be involved and for this whole community of, of, of thinkers that's interrelated. We're looking forward to contributing to that in a, in a, in a nice way. And that wraps up the first half of our coverage of the 2014 International Degrowth Conference. You can find more than 30 hours of videos on our website, but to be honest, they are of mixed quality because of translation, audio issues, and more. So there's no need to go through and watch all of them. You can just wait for some recaps here on the next episode of the Extra Environmentalist podcast. But to even get to the point where we can have the gear to demonstrate to conference organizers that we can do quality live streams is thanks to the contributions of our listening audience. People like David in Michigan who continually provide very generous contributions to the show. So thank you, David. Thanks also to Carla in Canada. Thank you so much, Carl. And Dana, who donated enough to receive a t-shirt, but said, don't ship me anything. That's so degrowth, Dana. Yeah, that's extremely degrowth. So thank you. <laughs> Thanks also to Jay in Maryland for his fantastic donation. And also Gordon in Vancouver, British Columbia. So thanks for donating, Gordon. Uh, it's great to have Vancouver BC uh, donation support. And so all of the donations that sent in $30 or more will be getting a thank you t-shirt sent to them, unless they wrote in like Dana did and said, please don't ship me anything. So thanks for 
really encapsulating that degrowth spirit. We're, we're very appreciative of that. And everyone who's been donating recently, thanks to the organizers at, behind Occupy Finance in New York, will be getting copies of the Occupy Finance Handbook. And so as we distribute some of our upcoming t-shirts, we will be including copies for our North American addresses of the Occupy Finance Handbook. In speaking about degrowth, this is not the only episode, and the next episode that uh, will come out in a few weeks are not the only episodes that we've done about degrowth. Back in the 2012 degrowth conference, we also did uh, episode number 55, where we took, it was like three hours long of all the interviews that we did, an unbelievable length of a podcast. I think it was our longest one ever. And it was this series of interviews that we did at the conference. And our listener, Nathan, in New Zealand, uh, put in an incredible effort to start transcribing some of the interviews that appeared in that episode, and we'll be posting those on our website. And there's no more timely issue because people like Paul Krugman are even bringing up the word degrowth in their latest columns, and we'll link to that in our show notes uh, for this episode. But it was pretty interesting to see a missile word that the degrowth organizers call call this word degrowth appear in a New York Times column by a Nobel Prize winning economist. If you're a, an adherent of the post-growth or degrowth movement, you've likely seen or heard what Paul Krugman had to say, but we'll get into more of that on the next episode. So we've been so tied up with all of our uh, fantastic video events that we've been doing recently that unfortunately this is the first year that we won't have a specific Halloween episode because we're still figuring out how to integrate our ongoing conference coverage with our podcast production schedules. And I think we finally figured it out coming into the end of this year, but I got to say it's been a pretty crazy year with doing all these video events and also doing a semi-regular podcast series. So don't worry, the Halloween episode, if you are a fan, will be back next year, but just not this year. So no ghouls and goblins for you in 2014. We're saving all of those for 2015. Thanks again for listening to another episode of The Action Environmentalist. We couldn't do it without your support, and we've been just overwhelmed by the amount of support we have been getting. So it's just fantastic having all of you listeners around the world listening. Keep your degrowth growing. is not an option. We either face the radical future of everything about our physical world changing, or we fundamentally change our economy. Radical change of some kind, whether physical or political, um, are our only options left. And and this is why I think that the climate crisis um, challenges centrist liberals (laughs) most of all. Um, because they subscribe to an ideology that is so resistant um, to the idea of, of, of radical change, to the idea of anything but incremental reformist change.
On the next episode of The Extra Environmentalist, we'll catch up with some of the highlights from many of the talks that we recorded at the 2014 Degrowth Conference, as well as talk to people about the German degrowth movement here, what attendees thought of the idea of degrowth, and talk to Luisa, our blog editor from London. One of my favorite sessions was with um, these three Italian guys, so all based in Barcelona. And they're all from Research and Degrowth, which is actually one of the big institutes, which I think organized the whole conference. And in, <laughs> I think two of them did a really big speech at the beginning of the event and seemed like these really big, important guys. They're just releasing this book. It's Federico de Maria and Giacomo Dalisa. But in a small session with them, it turns out they're actually um, part of a cooperative based south of Barcelona, and it's um, an organic olive oil farm. The Degrowth debate, one of the big issues is work. And we want to redefine work and um, we often talk of the reduction of the working hours in the paid sector, so when you work for a wage. And we think we can, you can dedicate your time to other activities, for instance to care or stay with your friends or your family. But you can also engage in primary production, having a small garden and growing your vegetables or doing your own bread or in this case making your own olive oil. In Germany, the post-growth debate uh, has been a lot on the personal situation and reducing your personal carbon footprint or your ecological footprint and um, feeling quite bad about your lifestyle which is important because lifestyles do have to change but it's been a bit under theoretical on how the whole economic and political system work. I think that in the last weeks we've seen a certain shift um, there's been this debate in a very conservative newspaper between a very left-wing um, thinker and a very conservative one and both agreed on that capitalism, according to Marx, they actually uh, cited Marx, both of them, the conservative one who's actually in the conservative ruling party, they both cited Marx and said um, Marx was right, capitalism uh, doesn't provide for a good life for all and is the actual driver behind growth.